Many conservatives recognize abortion as the most important political issue facing us today. Our guest this episode, Sarah St. Ange, joins us to shed some light on one of the most painful aspects of this issue. In 2010, Sarah discovered she was pregnant. Joyful in already having picked a name, she was then informed that her unborn baby was seriously ill, and she was advised to abort her daughter. She instead chose not to, and decided to give her daughter the best life possible for as long as she could. Today, she advocates for life and helps support mothers confronted by the same situation she faced. You're listening to The Cassie Dillon Show. Sarah, thanks for coming on. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have you on because this is my first pro-life episode, and this is an issue that means a lot to me. I have my own pro-life stories, but today we're here to talk about your pro-life story. And so before we even get into it, I kind of want to know more about your background and if you were raised with pro-life values. Uh, No, actually, I was not. I was raised in a very pro-choice household. So how did you come to those values? Was it before or after what we'll be talking about in a little bit? I would say consistently and no exclusions would be after what happened to me after what we're going to speak about later. I wobbled a lot throughout the years. What about your husband? Was he in a pro-life household growing no. up? No, no. So you're two completely, complete newcomers to the pro-life movement in your life. It wasn't something that was instilled in your head when you were a child. No, not at all. I come from the exact same background. I was not even pro-life until college. So I actually see a lot of people coming from those backgrounds. Everyone says, you know, you're pushing your religion on me, but and, you know, I didn't grow up in a religious household and I wasn't religious when I became pro-life. So I think it's interesting to talk to somebody else who also has a similar experience with that. So let's talk a little bit about your family. Where did you and your husband meet? Uh, he was actually a customer in a restaurant where I worked. <laughs> oh, so you were a waitress and he was there? I, yes, yes, that is what he actually came in with, to meet one of the other waitresses to have lunch with her. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh. That's spicy. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. And so then he asked you out and then you guys, he just forgot about the other waitress? Well, I don't think she was quite as interested in him. I don't know. And um, I I would gush over him when he came in. And finally, one day she turned around and said, if you like him so much, why don't you go out with him? (laughs) So So he went to the restaurant a lot. That's really funny. Every every Saturday. (laughs) And and what do you both do now? Uh, we own a small construction business um, here in New York, and then I also work part-time still waitressing. So, And you do that with five children? Well, yeah, three of them are adults. So <laughs> three okay, are, that's a little easier. Yeah, and, and the next youngest is 17. So, yeah, there's only one little, little person left in our house. And how old are they? Uh, she is seven. Seven. Wow, that's a big age gap. That's definitely a handful. (laughs) Oh, man. Most definitely. And when did you start trying to have children? Well, I actually had my first child when I was 17. So I don't think uh, there was no trying. It was was youthful indiscretion. It seems like almost every 10 years since then I've had a child. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. My mom actually had a child five years apart three times. So we're all five years apart. And it's kind of, it's kind of a big age gap. You know, yeah. me and my sister, now that we're both above 18, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But, you know, when we were all younger, that was a pretty big deal. And she used to babysit me and my brother. I'm the middle yeah. child. Yep. Yep. No, that's what we have a lot of. I, I try not to do that too much. I have a sister who's 10 years younger than me, and I was left quite a lot responsible for her. So um, I try not to do that too much. But, you know, it's convenient when you have yeah open babysitter here. It's convenient. <laughs> Much more convenient than actually paying someone and, yeah. and you know, like so you have to vet them and make sure you trust them. And, you know, exactly. you probably trust your own kids. Maybe they're, yeah, maybe sometimes you got to worry about them, make sure they're yeah. paying attention to the kid. Yeah. But, most you know. definitely. Well, yeah, most definitely. Well, let's shift gears and go into your story. So you and your husband, you had another child on the way. And tell us what happened when you went to the doctor um, for your first checkup when you found out you were pregnant. So the first time I actually went, I went with my stepdaughter um, and she, um, we went together um, to go do that, you know, six, eight week, nine week, 
you know, little dating um, appointment. And it was the first time she was actually going to be able to see a baby on an ultrasound. And it was really exciting. And, you know, How old and is she? I, at the time she was, she just turned 26 and this was almost 10 years ago, actually. So she was 15. And you were pregnant with baby number four? One, two, three, <laughs> One, two, three, four, five. That was baby five. But that was baby three for me. I have two, two of my children are stepchildren. Mm-hmm. So that was my third child in our, yeah. Um, and she went with me and that was about nine weeks um, pregnant. And that's when they noticed the first problem. There was a lot of fluid buildup around uh, my daughter's body and they could see, they didn't know what was going on. They pretty much just um, said that I had um, I was miscarrying is what they had thought. Did you so. have any complications with your other children? No, none at all. So when they told you this, obviously they're telling you that you're miscarrying. You must have panicked. I did. I I did. And, you know, when we're sitting there, I, you know, we're in, I noticed the uh, ultrasound tech was moving the um, screen of the ultrasound machine away so that we couldn't see it. So I kind mm-hmm. of knew, you know, I'd been through this before, like pregnancy. I knew that this wasn't what they usually do. And you know what the thing was, though? I just said, well, is there any heartbeat? I remember asking. And she said, oh, yes. There's st-. And I kind of didn't worry about it at that point. I was kind of like, okay, well, you know, sometimes they're wrong about things. So um, You didn't know exactly what it was. They just said that there was fluid buildup? Yeah, that there was fluid buildup um, all around her. Um, you know, it's very tiny by them, but they could see it built up all around her. So, yeah, they had thought actually that I may have been exposed to uh, measles and maybe oh. my titers were down, but um, that was their best guess. They did. I did. I had to have um, they had to check me to make sure all my immunizations were still uh, my titers were up for what I had been immunized against and stuff. And then those all came back fine. So they weren't really sure what was going on. So it was your first appointment. And right away, they're saying something's wrong here, and they didn't know what it was. Yep. And then what happened? And then so they pretty much took a bunch of blood work, did a bunch of tests, said, you know, very caringly, I'm, I'm sorry, this was a regular OBGYN, not maternal fetal medicine, not a, not a doctor for the complicated um, situations. And she just said, I'm, I'm really sorry that this is happening, and pretty much sent me home and said, you know, we'll make an appointment for you again to come back, but we're pretty sure you're miscarrying. Um, and at 12 weeks, I still had not miscarried the baby. So I had an appointment at that um, point with a maternal fetal medicine doctor. They had to do um, some more in, more um, intense testing ultrasound-wise, no kind of nothing um, invasive to see mm-hmm. if they could see any signs of any other issues. they at about 12 weeks, they do. It's a nuchal translucency test where they test the fluid. Every fetus has a little bit of fluid on the back of their neck, but they can usually tell by the amount, the width of the um, fluid, if there's any genetic anomalies. The wider that space is on the back of the baby's neck, that the more fluid buildup there is there, the more likely there is to be a genetic anomaly. And so they do that at about 12 weeks. And that can help them figure out whether they want to do more invasive testing. You were sent home. They said they didn't know what was going on. And they just told you to make an appointment with a, like a specialist. Yeah, they said if you're still pregnant by 12. Well, they, they kind of made that appointment and said, but we don't, we don't think you're going to need this appointment. They said kind of go home and prepare to miscarry. Yeah, be prepared to miscarry. But here, if you are still pregnant at this point, then um, this is where you're going. Your next appointment is going to be here. What was going through your mind at that time? Um, I guess every day that something didn't happen that was bad, I just was hopeful that things were going to be okay, that maybe they were wrong. You know, you talk to other women and I, I would, you know, say things and, you know, to, to other women that I knew and they would say, oh, they, they're always, doctors always say something is wrong. So at that time I was kind of at that mindset, like, well, unless I go into the doctor and they tell me that there's no heartbeat, then I'm just going to keep continuing as if everything's okay. You know, so you continue to have hope because of the heartbeat. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Most definitely. I feel like if that happened to me, I would be on Google, just Googling everything, (laughs) trying to figure out if this has happened to anyone else, what they did. I would be going nuts. I did the same thing and it it probably wasn't the best. (laughs) 
because <laughs> that fluid, all that fluid buildup um, is, is actually very serious. And usually you do miscarry if they see it that early on, you, they see that you, you usually do miscarry the baby, but um, she just had a fighting spirit, I guess. And, you know, she was still there at 12 weeks. So, and then you went to the specialist and you had more ultrasounds. What came out of that? So they um, said that there's definitely a genetic anomaly um, because her the nuchal fold on the back of her neck was was very very wide, and my husband and I my he went to that appointment with me, um, and you know we were thinking okay you know we were a little bit older and we were like okay well the baby has Down syndrome you know and we we sat in the car and talked about it a little bit and we just thought okay okay this is what it's going to be you know we're gonna have a baby is that what they told you it was Down syndrome. No. No, they said genetic. They just said genetic. But at that point, I didn't really know how much could go wrong. Yeah. I had no clue, you know, that all these other things existed or even, you know, even that these things happen to babies. I had, I just knew that sometimes babies, you know, obviously I knew um, babies pass away, you know, babies die, you have miscarriages, but I did not know that there were other genetic anomalies um, that babies sometimes survived with other than Down syndrome. At that point, did you guys sort of come to the realization, because you thought it was Down syndrome, so did you guys accept the fact that you might have a child with Down syndrome? Oh, absolutely. There was not even any question of of not, yeah. That was not a problem for us, (laughs) you know. (laughs) That's good because that is a, a really big problem, especially in Europe right now, where they are uh, they're trying to get rid of Down syndrome, and by doing that, they're trying to just abort children who have it, and it's really sad, and it's a big issue right now that's being yeah. covered, especially in, in Iceland and other places like that. Yeah. No so, doubt. you were sent home at twelve weeks um, yep. after that appointment. Yep. And then what happened? Well, first, did they ever mention abortion at that point? Not at that point. Um, they just were kind of like at, by that point they were still like well if you can if you don't miscarry they still were very until about 16 weeks they were very like you're going to miscarry you're going to miscarry mm-hmm. you're going to miscarry um there was nothing life affirming at that point i will say that i we probably or i probably i can't i don't want to speak for other people but i probably grasped on to the positive more i i have to be i'm a glass half full person anyways, most of the time. So, you know, I was like, okay, this is what it is. And, um, but no, they had not mentioned it at that point at that 12 week point. When was your next appointment? Uh, 16 weeks. I have to clarify at this time I was seeing two doctors. I was seeing a regular, um, OBGYN who all she did was just regular prenatal check, you know, heartbeat. How's your, you know, urine test, things like that. So Mm -hmm. going forward, I just want to be clear when you're asking me questions about what the doctors were saying, I'm not talking about a regular OBGYN. I'm talking about the maternal fetal medicine doctor. That's the okay. specialist. Yeah. Um, so that was, well, that. you were going to the OBGYN just to make sure that there's still a heartbeat. That would no. that was for my care. The maternal. Yeah. To, they're just doing the regular because the maternal fetal medicine, the specialist didn't do regular prenatal care. He was mm-hmm. only a specialist for the anomalies and to check out. There are different types of um, OBGYNs and, you know, they have different focuses in their practices. He only took um, referrals from OBGYNs and worked in conjunction with them. He didn't deliver babies. He only gotcha. did this kind of testing for OBGYNs who would be hopefully delivering these babies that they were talking about. Well, what happened at the 16 week appointment? (laughs) So that was, that was the first time, um, that they mentioned the words incompatible with life. Um, I got in there, started doing, um, what it was. Okay. So back up. Usually when you have a normal pregnancy, they do the fetal anatomy scan at 20 weeks. And that's what everybody thinks of as their big gender reveal. But when you foresee that there's some type of anomaly, they do that at 16 weeks. And the reason they do that is because they want you to be able to terminate the pregnancy before your state's cut off. They want you to have time to make a decision. So we go in at 16 weeks. Um, 
I had chosen at that time to do an amnio um, because I was a little older and not because I was contemplating termination, but because I wanted to know what was going on um, because um, to be able to be prepared for what kind of um, challenges that we would be facing. So I went in, they started doing the ultrasound and they were almost immediately um, the ultrasound tech, you could see it in her face. She's like, I have, I have to go get the doctor. And we're like, what, what's wrong? It's like, I have to go get the doctor. I'm sorry. She went and got him. We're sitting there for about a half an hour. Uh, and he comes in and he looks and she had the fluid on the back of her neck had actually resolved itself. But at that point she had, it's a, um, it's an abdominal wall defect. So she had an embalaceal, which means that her abdomen, her umbilical cord never formed properly and her liver, her intestines, her stomach were actually on the outside of her body. And like, it would be like the base of the umbilical cord. So it's like if the umbilical cord kind of blew up like a balloon and all this stuff was in the middle of it on the outside of her body. And it was very large. And he had said, because that, um, at the 12 week appointment, that fluid was so built up indicating a genetic anomaly. And now she had this abalaceal, um, just based on her physical appearance, they were, um, tentatively diagnosing her with trisomy 13. And he said, this is incompatible with life. Your daughter, she's not going to survive. Um, and what was going through your mind at that point? Well, remember we talked about Googling, <laughs> <laughs> when, when, when I had had that 12 week appointment, um, where they had shown some kind of genetic anomaly, I went home and that's when I started Googling. And that's when I started discovering there were other types of trisomy disorders and genetic disorders. So, um, I knew what trisomy 13 was and, um, the minute he said it, and it was it was a little frightening because at that time the Google images that popped up, the first trisomy baby that popped up was a baby with no face. It was just a, a newborn, obviously, and it was obviously uh, an autopsy photograph, and the baby just had no features on its face. So I'm like, but about three or four mentions down from that, I had also found there's this woman. Um, Therese Ann, who runs Living with Trisomy 13, and she had a website and it showed all kinds of children who were alive. And they obviously um, were not typical, you know, going to kindergarten at five, and, but they were alive and they were healthy and they were happy in their way that they could be. And um, so I, I did know, a I knew that the chances were, were you know, things were against her surviving overall, because this is a very serious birth defect. But I also knew that there was a chance for her to survive given the right care. So what do I, the children who have it, who are five years old look like? You said that their intestines were outside their body while they're in the womb. What, what oh. effects do they have in their body when they're older? So there's a separate, you can have an abalaceal actually without trisomy 13. An abalaceal is just a structural defect, which indicates that there could be a genetic disorder. And that's for further down the story. There's another interesting fact about that. But um, usually when a baby has an embalaceal, what happens is they, depending on the size of it, sometimes they can just pop everything back in when the baby's born and, you know, soda, make them a belly button and they're on their way. Um, but with a baby who has a really large one, what they actually do is they um, they paint it with silvadine. They, they actually create and, and use skin expanders and leave the obelisy on the outside of the child's body until they get old enough to have surgery and they've widened themselves. Like I said, they use tissue expanders and things like that to, um, to grow skin that will fit around that whole, um, you know, ball of organs and push it back in. I mean, that's a pretty basic explanation. Wow. I'm sure somebody's going to find that's that's not exactly how it goes, but that's, that's very basic. But yeah, they can, as far as trisomy 13, not all babies have embalaceals with that. So that's a, that's a totally different thing. Um, but the funny thing is what I was going to say was, um, it's interesting because my daughter's liver was in her umbalaceal and overall, if the umbalaceal has organs, it only has intestines, that's a genetic disorder. But if it has other organs in it, it's not a genetic disorder. And I actually knew that as well. So I was kind of puzzled at his trisomy 13 uh, 
prognosis or diagnosis there. So what's it like for a five-year-old to live with trisomy 13? Um, what is it like? They, um, they, you know, some of them have feeding tubes. Some of them use, um, education assistance. They, uh, but the ones that I know go to school, they, they, they're not sitting at home. Some of them can walk. There's also, you know, trisomy 18. They have the, uh, some of them use walking machines. They have their OT, their PT and everything that um, any other child with a disability would would have. They just do it a little differently. Well, I guess like, how does it affect their body? And we haven't gotten really clear about that. Like how, how, like what kind of disability is it? Is it, I know you mentioned organs earlier. What exactly does it do? Well, trisomy 13 is, um, the children are developmentally disabled um, severe, much more than with a, um, down syndrome. Um, it's, it's much more serious. They have, um, cardiac defects, um, mobility issues. Um, they have very distinctive and I think very beautiful faces, (laughs) very distinctive faces. Um, so yeah, that, um, it's, it can vary between, you know, different children. They have different abilities, just like, you know, the typical child does. Well, I'm glad you are really educated on it. And it sounds like you were when you were talking to the doctor. So what did you say to the doctor once he gave you the diagnosis? Well, he just kind of was in and out, incompatible with life, um, and sent us to a genetic counselor. (laughs) And we had more of a conversation with her. Um, And, you know, I, we asked a lot of questions. She was very, um, obviously very, attempting to coerce toward termination. And that was the first time we had somebody or that, you know, I had experienced somebody who was really pushing for a termination. She, uh, you know, I was, I kept asking questions as if there was hope involved that, you know, well, what happens when this happens? And she finally looked at me and she said, you realize you're never taking this baby home. If the baby survives, the baby is going to go straight into an institution. An (laughs) institution. Yeah. And I, and in my head, because I had looked up all, Googled all this stuff, I knew that that wasn't true. So it's not how we treat the disabled anymore. (laughs) I'm like, well, you know what? And I've said this before too. I have this image of like some, like it was for some reason it was in Washington state, I guess, because it's always raining. Some like institution with like these Victorian maids all around that where they send all these like, like exactly. I'm like, what are you talking about? This is insane. But um, yeah, that's what she told us. Did you look at her and flat out say, I'm not having an abortion? Um, I, I think I was so shell shocked at that time that that was, that was, I had not, I was not as clear at that point. I think that, um. I probably didn't say I'm not. I said, I probably would have said more. I, well, I don't think that that's what I want to do. She didn't actually come out and say, you need to have this. She's like, well, most people terminate and this people. Yeah. And I learned later um, in speaking to that doctor again, that he had actually never had a parent carry to term. And I was wow. kind of like, yeah. Never. Yeah, no, he had never had a parent carry to term with that serious of a diagnosis now. And I was kind of shocked at that. At the time, I wasn't shocked because I guess I had, I was getting so much pressure from everywhere that I felt like I was an anomaly, that I was different. And then it wasn't until I met other moms who had the same stories that I found out I wasn't as, I wasn't the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, and so after that appointment, what happened next? You decided I'm keeping this baby and I, I will see what happens. Yes. Well, on the, when you have an amnesia, because I had an amnio at that appointment and um, that weekend I wrote down, or no, this was after that. Um, so when I had the amnio and I called like the following, that was like on a Thursday or Friday, I called the following Tuesday and it turned out that she did not have trisomy 13. She had no genetic defects whatsoever. Um, yeah, we found out that she was female, um, because we did the anomaly and then that she had nothing or no anomalies on any of the major chromosomes where they usually find the anomalies. So I did, because they do an early, there's the, Amnio is broken into, there's a fish test, which just is like a quick one 
where they just grab the most common um, issues and give you results on that. And then it takes the microarray takes longer, which is where they go over each and every chromosome and, and see if there's any partials or, or any tr- other tr- weird trisomies or anything. And um, when that first one, I wrote down a list actually of every single um, chromosome number. And I researched, I still have it in my notebook. I researched every single chromosome to see what issues could happen outside of those three most common, which were trisomy 21, Down syndrome, 13 and 18. And what I found was that the majority of the, the remaining chromosomes were, were either she would have been dead by then, or she could survive with disabilities. So that definitely, um, made me feel as if continuing was not that there was any question for me, but that continuing was going to be the better option for her as well. So just to clarify, the results didn't say nothing was wrong with her. It just said that she didn't have what the doctor thought she had. At that time, um, later on when we got the whole microarray, they confirmed that nothing was wrong with her genetically. Gotcha. Yeah. So what's going through your head at this point after you get the results? Well, when I spoke to, it's funny, the woman I got the results from was a different genetic counselor than the one I spoke, that I had spoken to in office. And I asked her, I said, so let me ask you something. I said, could the fluid that was involved um, on the back of her neck earlier in the pregnancy, could that have been caused by the emphalocele? Because the fluid is caused by blockages in the, in the system, you know, cardiovascular issues or something in the lymphatic, um, um, is not draining or something like that. And she said, absolutely. It could have been, we, the valsile could have been so small. We didn't see it. And that's what was causing the fluid backups. So I thought, Oh, so at that point I actually thought there very little was wrong. And I, I, I assumed that we were clear sailing as long as I could get everybody else on board with me. I, you know, I sought out groups for women who had had um, children with emphalocele at that point solo by themselves to try to find some information. When did you find out that delivery was not going to go as planned as in when you got the really bad news? Um, so I got the, well, I kept hoping the whole time that, um, it, I got the really, the definite, her definite diagnosis was when I was 24 weeks pregnant was when they said, um, this was at Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital in New York City. And they said, I'm sorry, but this is, I went in and had a fetal MRI and many ultrasounds. And we spent the whole day there seeing all kinds of specialists. And um, they said, this is not, she's not going to survive this. Her lungs, um, because so many of her organs were on the outside of her body, her trunk of her body, like her sternum and everything was so small. They said it wouldn't give time for her um, lungs to develop at that point. And still you were not thinking about termination. Absolutely not. They were, that was, yeah. They're, they were encouraging it. Oh, well, yeah. Between that 16 week and 24 point, 24 week point, they asked me at every single appointment. They asked you, do you want to terminate? Or yes. did they say, or did they recommend it? They're like, you know, they you should probably. Every single time. Every single time. To the point and what did where you I, say to them? Well, I kept saying no, and there there was one point where I had called and asked if they could put notes in my chart saying that I did not plan on terminating and that I would prefer that doctors not offer it to me anymore. And I was told that they could not do that because um, it was an informed consent issue, and I was seeing so many different doctors that each individual doctor had to offer it to me until obviously 24 24 weeks. It must have just gotten annoying at that point. It, it did. And it was also, you know, looking back in retrospect, realizing that not once did anybody ever offer to help me carry her to term. Why did you not go for the termination? Because at that point, you know, it's funny because she was a human being. <laughs> like, yeah, I had never thought up till that point, like I said, you know, my, my thoughts on this evolved over years and over time period. Um, you know, um, you know, I went from being pro-choice and then did the pro-life with exceptions. And until that happened to me, if you would have asked me what I thought about a woman whose child was going to, to die, I might've said, well, she should be able to have that option. You know, um, you know, she was a person and she was human and, you know, I don't have a right to take somebody else's 
else's life. You know, that's, that's not my, that's not my prerogative. It's not, you shouldn't be able to take my life because I'm disabled or something's wrong with me. So even though you were told that she wouldn't make it, you felt in your heart that she still had a chance and it was not your right to take away that chance. Absolutely. You know, it wasn't anybody's right to take away that chance. You know, she's a human being. (laughs) We'll be right back. In 2016, I founded Lone Conservative, a platform and community for conservative college students to write about conservative values, ideas, and policies. With many conservative students feeling alone on their overwhelmingly leftist campuses, creating a sense of community is one of Lone Conservative's primary goals. Lone Conservative has worked with over 300 contributors from 48 states to help develop the future of conservatism. Help us continue and support Lone Conservative by going to loneconservative.com and clicking donate to help more conservative students have a voice. Again, that's loneconservative.com. Thank you. Yeah. Did she come early or were you right on the due due date time? No, she came early. She came out 34 weeks. And so you are, your, your water breaks, you're rushing to the hospital. What happens? Tell us the story of that day. So, um... Well, I tell you, the Friday before she was born, I actually told the, um, I had an appointment at Morgan Stanley and I told the doctor there that uh, I thought I was going into labor. And she said, no, you're not. And I said, I've had two other children. I'm pretty sure I'm going into labor. No, you're not going into labor. You have so much time, you know. And I said, you know, I feel like I'm going into labor. Could you just write me a note? I was still working at that point. I said, can I get some kind of note saying that I can stay home and be on bed rest? I'd like to try to keep her in there as long as possible because her problem was lung development. That was ultimately what would decide whether she was going to live or die was whether she could breathe. Um, and with the emphalocele, what happens is it presses down on, on the bot. It, you know, like her, the area that her lungs could grow was so small you know, with the emphalocele on one side. And then because the emphalocele was so large, it was causing a scoliosis. So from both sides, she was almost being like, I don't want to say compressed because she wasn't being compressed, but it was making the space that her lungs could grow in very small. Um, And so I told them on Friday and um, they refused to do anything. And uh, they didn't believe you. No, she did not believe me. Um, and, um, that I believe it was Sunday night. Um, my water broke later in the evening. I actually called my boss to make sure to tell her I wouldn't be to work. And you're still working at a restaurant, right? Yes. So I'm working. I called my boss. She actually was, wasn't really thrilled. She's like, really? (laughs) I'm like, sorry, lady. I'm going to labor. (laughs) Um, and then we um, ended up, we had to leave. My son at the time was um, seven. We left him with one of the older kids who was still home. And we drove from our area, which usually takes about an hour and a half to get into the city. We, we were in the city within 30 minutes. Um, I'm surprised we didn't get pulled over. Uh, <laughs> and um, we went in. I asked for steroid injections because sometimes when you're going into preterm labor, if they give steroid injections, it can cause the surfacant to develop in the lungs. It just helps with breathing for a preemies. Uh, they told me, no, we don't do that for babies who are going to die. Oh my uh, gosh. Everything along the way. When I asked the doctor on that Friday to send me on bed rest, please. Um, I asked her at that point because I knew I was in labor. I said, can I have the I had also asked her for the steroids and she, no, we don't do a lot of times I got the answer. We don't really do that for babies who are just going to die. Um, in the, when I went into the living room, I mean the living room, the waiting room, <laughs> when I went into the waiting room, um, it was, it was hard because my water had broke and I'm sitting in delivery at, at Morgan Stanley and I'm sitting in a waiting room. And I'm like, the chair is all wet because they're having me sitting in a regular Oh my like gosh. Lobby waiting to go in. And I'm like, and I'm, it, it was kind of surreal because I'm like, I'm not asking for special treatment. Don't get me wrong, but they knew what was going on and they didn't, I'm in a room with other people. There was a woman when they moved me into the pre-op area, there was another family right next to me. And it was, I remember, um, 
it was a very young couple and, um, he was just coaching her and he was awesome. They were, a, a young, obviously like, um, Hasidic Jewish couple. And he was so great. And I could hear him coaching his wife and he was so sweet to her and just everything. And I'm like, I can't believe you're putting me in the room next to these people who are just welcoming this, you know, this life. And that's going to oh be like something. And, um, when they, and I'm sitting, listening to them, talking to them over there. And then the nurse came over on my side and, um, starts looking for her heartbeat and they couldn't find it. And oh, so yeah. then they said, I'm sorry, but I think that she's passed away. I think she's, she's already died. And, what was going on in the other side, the other room with the, with the Jewish couple, they just stopped talking. So I know that they heard what the nurse had said to me. And I just, it was very, like I said, it was surreal because I'm like, why are you, why am I here? And the, could you not find somewhere a, that I'm not, um, making everything worse for other people who might be scared, you yeah. know, and, and aren't really thinking on this vein that sometimes babies die. And for myself that I'm listening to these people who are obviously really excited and, you know, getting ready to start their family. And I'm just like, it was, it was kind of awful. Um, I did ask them to look one more time about 15 minutes after that though. And they did find her heartbeat after that. So oh, she wow. Was, yeah. So she must've been just turned weird or something. So they did, they did find it after that. And then you started to deliver? I had to have a C-section. Um, one of the issues with her particular, the, um, the syndrome that she had is that um, her abdomen, um, the umbilical was actually had a, almost like just a stump of an umbilical cord attached to the inside of the uh, placenta. So it, um, so it was obviously very short, very, very short umbilical cord. So if I would have tried to deliver um, vaginally, she could have gotten stuck in, um, in the birth canal and I could have hemorrhaged. So they had to do a C-section. There was no, which is funny because early on in the pregnancy, I had asked one of the doctors if he would um, give me a C-section in order to try to increase the chances that she was going to survive. And um, he had said he was not going to ruin a perfectly healthy uterus for a baby who was just going to die. Oh my gosh. You were really fighting an uphill battle here. <laughs> None of them were doing, taking any of the requests you had. Zero. No, no, not at all. Your body, your choice, but not your choice when it comes to how you want to deliver your baby. That's, that's crazy. That's, that's exactly how I felt. That's so, yeah. wild. That's such a contradiction. That's nuts. Yeah, I couldn't is. even imagine. I yeah. Wow. That actually makes me mad. It, <laughs> it really does. Me, it still does for me as well. Still. You know, and just a side story, my sister had her first baby back in January and she was in labor for three days and they gave her an epidural, but apparently they put it in the wrong spot and they paralyzed my sister for like 12 hours. Oh my goodness. And she had all sorts of issues. And I think they're still working out with the hospital, but that was, that was crazy. That they, is, that they, they had to do an emergency C-section after three days of her being in labor. That's awful. Yeah. That's so awful. I, doctors are always trying to do their best, but sometimes, you know, they just need to listen to their patients more in my opinion. I, I agree with that assessment. Definitely. So, okay. So I just want to point out that you were already going through a stressful time where you knew that this might not go great. And then you also have the social anxiety of trying not to ruin a day for another couple. So like, that's just like another facet of your stress. And I can't believe that you had to go through all of that at the same time. Yeah, it was, it was, and like I said, they were very young, so I didn't want to, you know, I'm like, oh, this is yeah. awful. These people are starting out their life and this is what they're listening to in the next room. It was, it was, it was, yeah, it was Sad. kind of awful. Yeah. And then you're put into the operating room for C-section and what happened after that? Um, so I had asked to be awake and alert because we didn't know at that point, because it was 34 weeks and she was so small, I pretty much knew that um, it was going to be, it was definitely going to be miraculous if um, things went well. So um, I had asked to be awake and alert um, because if our time was limited, I wanted to make sure that I would be able to spend as much time as possible with her. Um, they brought my husband in after, um, after they had already started the surgery, he actually mentioned as well that when they brought him in, they did it in such a way so that he had to walk past. Um, I was completely opened up. He could see my organs and, oh and my everything out. And he said, he, he said he felt as if they were um, almost trying to punish him, like, see what you did. 
see what see what happens uh so oh, wow yeah that's yeah that was another what does awake and alert mean did you have any you had to have some painkillers right yeah just the spinal they just um made it at the base of my spine they they numbed me from the base of my spine down so i could or not like base but um I could feel, I guess, middle of back, not the base of your spine. Mm-hmm. I could feel them tugging and pulling and everything, but it wasn't painful. I just felt the pressure of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sorry about all the questions. I have not had a baby yet, so no, I do not know a lot about what happens. Well, sometimes with some situations, they'll knock you out if you're having um, a C-section, depending on the situation. But you um, normally, they leave women... Um, awake but at that point my faith in them was, was yeah was quite shattered i so. would have to be knocked out needles and blood not my <laughs> thing i need to be knocked out <laughs> oh no it's not that bad you'll no. <laughs> but it's an amazing thing that you weren't because you got to spend time with your daughter yeah no so um and she was born they had to do um a really old school type of c-section so it wasn't the little tiny like little bikini cut that you see it's like, I literally have a scar going, um, hip to hip. Um, they open, you know, as wide as they could to take her out as gently as possible. And then they, uh, they took her to the NICU for, um, about 15 minutes to assess. I asked, you know, I would like her to be assessed to see if she has a possibility to survive or, um, what we can do for her. And unfortunately they, there was nothing they could do for her. So um, my husband brought her back to me and we just held her until she passed away. And she lived for a total of an hour and 47 minutes. Was she responsive? Did Was she looking around? Was she crying? Any of that? Um, she, with my husband, yes. Um, at the point when she got to me, because he was with her when they were um, working on her instead, he said she smiled at him twice. She grabbed oh. his finger um but by the time she had come to me she was very um she was already um the process had already started to happen her heartbeat was slowing she was you know respirations everything was slowing by the time she got with me I don't think any parent can be prepared for losing a child but you you had you know you might you might have you kind of knew that this would happen so did you I guess I want to know exactly what you were feeling in that moment. Cause obviously no one's prepared for that, but you knew it might be a, a possibility. So how, how was interacting with your daughter? How did that go? It's funny because people will say, um, you know, when they imagine how something is, um, is very different than when it happens. And I can't speak for anybody else, but other parents that I've spoke to have said the same thing. I have to say that short amount of time that was spent there in that hospital room was actually one of the most peaceful experiences that I've ever had in my life. It was not, you know, there were things that I didn't like about what happened in terms of medical staff. There were certain things that happened, but any time that was spent with her was actually very peaceful. It was very, um, and you know, they talk about the, um, the peace which surpasses all understanding. I mean, that's definitely what I experienced. I don't know what other people, but I've spoken to other parents who have had similar um, experiences and they've said the same thing that there's just, it's just different and it's indescribable. And you didn't not, have time to worry about anything else. You only had no, time you to worry about what was in that moment and you were trying to exactly. cherish every moment you could. Exactly. And I, I need to be clear. I'm not saying that as like is as if it's a positive thing. And I'm not saying it's like as in a martyrdom or anything like that. I'm just saying it that's what it was. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. hard to say that. And well, you know, people look at it weird, you know, they look at it strangely and think, first of all, they're putting their own um context onto it. So they're thinking how they would feel, but it, it, and, and then some people see it. Like, I know I've talked to like pro-choice people will, will say when you talk about things like this and they try to make it out, like you're, you're doing some kind of weird martyrdom thing. And it's, it's not that it just, that's what it was. It was just very peaceful. Mm-hmm. Everything, all the stuff that you worry about was just gone. And was it worth being pregnant for what? 34 weeks Absolutely. to have, to have the one hour and 47 minutes? Absolutely. Without wow. question. There, There's nothing I 
the only thing I would have changed would have been that we would have had a longer time with her. Absolutely. Did you know, no did you know when she passed away? No. What happens um, when you're having this situation is they try to give you as much alone time as you can get without medical stuff buzzing all around you. And the doctor, the um, NICU doctor, um, comes in and periodically and checks for a heartbeat. And then they, um, so she could have passed away 10 minutes before we actually had an official time. We don't know, but she came about every five, 10 minutes, she would come in, just do a little heartbeat check and then leave again. And then finally there was one time, obviously she came in and said, yeah, she's gone. So, and you don't, when you're in that moment, we didn't even notice that she had passed away. Were you praying for a miracle? <sighs> Absolutely. The whole time. And until the very second, I believed that there would be one. I truly believed that there would be one. No. And I wouldn't. Nurse- Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I would have still, I want to be clear though, too. I would have still made the same choice, even if I had not clearly prayed the whole time and expected one. Mm-hmm. And when the nurse told you there was no, no longer a heartbeat, what was your first reaction? I think that I was still in such a, a state of um, calm and such a state of peace that it, it didn't, I don't, I think I was in such shock, you know, um, that it didn't really register. Um, I don't think I really, I didn't really feel anything either way. Um, you know, like I said, I knew that when we went in there at 34 weeks, that the chance of success was going to be very low. So I think I had kind of made um, peace with the the fact that she was most likely um, going to pass away when we were, the minute my water broke, you mm-hmm. know, I was kind of like, okay, okay, this is, this is what's going to, I'm not going to be able to keep her a little longer. I'm not going to be able to do this. So, yeah. And what happens after that? So you found out the baby passed away and then the nurse took so, the baby from you or what happened? So you, at that point, because I had been talking to people and I had been um, connecting with people, I, I kind of went into, I don't know if it's mom mode. I don't know what it was, but I'm, I'm a very like, I have 7,000 pictures on my phone right now. I'm the very picture I love. So I, I, we took photographs of her. Um, we did not, unfortunately there's an organization called now I lay me down to sleep where they'll come and they'll send a professional photographer to come out and they take pictures. And unfortunately the photographer that we had engaged was not able to make it. Um, so I took photographs of her. I made sure that we, um, we tried to do as many of the memory things that we could. And then we just, held her and kept her until the point where, um, until the point where we started to, it became apparent that things were changing. And then I asked the nurse to take her away because I felt that, um, emotionally that would be, I would, I didn't want to start seeing those changes. Um, not because, um, it would be hard for me, but because it, it wasn't right for her. You know, now she was not there anymore. She was, I mean, our, you know, she was, her body was still there, but, um, she had continued on her journey home, you know? So that was, that was when it was time for her to, to go and us to start the next part of the process. And you said you were in shock sort of, or like still in a state of peace. Yeah. Uh, when did you start mourning? (sighs) when I got home, you know, I'm not very emotive in front of people that I don't know. Um, it makes me a little uncomfortable to, you know, whether it's exuberance or, or grief, I don't like yeah. really, I like to be very flatline <laughs> with people Try that I'm strong. Yeah. Um, so even in the hospital in the days afterwards, I actually had a, one of the nurse asked me if I wanted a, um, something to help me sleep. And then crazy enough, she asked me if I wanted antidepressants, Oh. And I was kind of like, I, I think I'm supposed to be sad right now. <laughs> mm. You know, I, I literally, that's why I looked at her. I said, I think I'm supposed to be sad right now. 
so I'm okay. I was like, that's, that's so inappropriate. I didn't say that to her, but I was just like, I didn't really let it go until after I had gotten home. I stayed in the hospital. They, even the nurses were like, you're very calm. Are you sure? I think they thought, they're like, are you sure you're okay? You're very calm. You're very calm. And I said, yeah. The only time I got really upset in the hospital was the day before I was supposed to leave. Um, my children were coming up and, um, I had said something to the, the social worker was coming by every day and checking on me. And I said, I wish I would have gotten more time. I didn't, there's things that I wanted to do. I wanted to give her a bath. I wanted to, you know, things that I should have done. And she said, well, do you want me to bring her back? Oh my gosh. And well, that's actually very common. And I'll explain to you. I didn't know she was still there. And I probably would have. What they do now is actually at that point, this was um, before the explosion of, you know, internet groups and stuff, but um, they actually will bring you um, the baby back so that you can hold them and look at them, spend time. What they do now is there's these, um, they're actually called, they're bassinets called cuddle cots. And they, you can keep the baby in your room and it keeps the, I don't want to get too graphic, um, it keeps the temperature even so that um, you can keep the baby in the room two or three days. And because there's such a short amount of time that parents are allowed to, um, or not even allowed, but that you can spend with your child, some parents do find that comforting because they can, you know, there's a lot of suggestions for how you're supposed to parent a child um, who's passed away, and that's bathing them dressing them for the last time, combing their hair, doing hand and footprints, all these things that can be accomplished when you utilize these services that I didn't realize. And that was the only time that I, and it was actually because it was part of that whole emoting thing too, is that I would have not minded them to bring her up to me if I was alone. And I had just spent four days in the hospital pretty much by myself and I was a little annoyed that they had not told me that I could have her brought back to me because I would have, there were things I didn't get to look at and things I didn't see. I, I never yeah. looked at her knees. I, I would have loved to have had that opportunity to look at her again and see her face and, you know, her little fingers and, you know, um, and unfortunately I didn't know till the very last day <laughs> that I could do that. That's the only point I had like a little, not a, I was just really angry. <laughs> And you didn't have her come back though, right? No, because my children were coming up. And at that time I didn't understand. Um, You know, I had that whole idea that it was, it would scar them somehow. They would, they would be forever scarred and permanently damaged if I would have done that. I know now um, when you go read like studies and, and, you know, available information that that's actually acceptable and it doesn't scar, you know, we have this in our society, this strange, um, avoidance of the topic of death that is very unhealthy people Mm. used to be taken care of at home until they went into you know you that's how we've always done it human beings have done for millennia there's been you know ceremonies and situations around it that we just you know we don't do anymore it's very sterile and hospitalized and it it wouldn't have scarred them but at the time i thought it it would So my first reaction was that too. Um, When you said bring back the baby, I was like, what? That's weird. But no, I think you're making wonderful points. And obviously I've never been in that situation. And that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it does. And especially like, as you know, I'm a Christian person, especially when you look at, um, you know, the connection between we are body and spirit. We're not, the body isn't just a shell of, you know, going over the top of the soul. It's, it's part of who the person is and that separation of the body and spirit is, is what's problematic and what's troublesome to us is that we're not meant to be that way. Every person is created with both of those things, you know, you know, created in God's image. And that separation is so traumatic for us that we, we kind of try to avoid any, any connection with it, but it's so integral to, you know, what we are as, as human beings. And we've kind of, you know, lost sight of that, I think. Mm -hmm. Did you have a funeral? No, we did not. And that has been one of my biggest regrets. <laughs> um, again, I didn't know how to do this at the time. No. I, I didn't know that I should be doing that. We did have a small, um, the funeral home that we used had a small room put aside for us so that we could go see her and our family could go see her. And I really have to say, 
um, the funeral director was excellent. And because he had actually been through the same thing less than a year beforehand. So he knew. Yeah, he did. My husband said, um, he was sitting down. I was still in the hospital. He was sitting down at the table with him and he, um, was speaking to him and he looked at my husband and he said, so you never thought of abortion. And my husband said he almost got up and walked out wow. because he was, he was, and then he, he said, no, my husband said no. And he gave him a hug and he said, um, evidently he had had a daughter born with a serious birth defects and she had lived for a short time at Yale New Haven. And, um, then she passed away. So he actually helped us a lot. He, uh, it was him and my husband were able to get hand and footprint molds for her. And um, a lot of things that we should have had done at the hospital, but they didn't do for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was actually kind of surprised because I guess at Yale New Haven, they had already had a perinatal hospice program put in. They have one now at um, Columbia, at, um, Morgan Stanley, but they didn't at that time. Mm-hmm. So. And it, se- it seems like since this happened to you, you've gotten a lot more involved with other women that are going through this or had gone through this. So, cause you keep talking a lot about things you would have done differently. So I wanted to kind of talk about, um, what you do now in terms of talking to women about this. Um, so after, for about five or six years after, um, my daughter was born, I actually had a website online. It was, um, stories of with my daughter's particular defect complex, um, we shared, there was probably about 10 or 12 stories of women who had carried to term photographs, medical information. Um, that was decent enough that the, uh, nor the national organization for rare disorders accepted our website onto their database. Um, we didn't make it overtly, um, religious or non-religious. We just told the stories, gave the medical information and connection. We have a Facebook group for people who carry to term with this particular disorder And, um, so that's what I did. Um, there came a time when I couldn't keep up with that. I actually still have the domain name and I thought about redoing that over this time that I'm home from work because I'm on quarantine. Um, I used to be very active in, um, in running our Facebook group for that. I had to kind of step back from that a little bit though, because it became to, it came to the point where it's just like, all I ever saw was people with and this is the only way I can phrase it. I know this is a negative way, but all I ever saw was people with pregnancies that ended poorly. Mm-hmm. And I have to take a step back from that. I understand that there is no such thing as a pregnancy that ends poorly. It always, you know, as like I said, I'm again, I'm, I'm a Christian person. I understand pregnancies and the way that they're meant to end. I, I get that. But on the human plane, all I was, and that's all I was dealing with. And so I had it's to, depressing. I, I, yeah, it did. And I had to step back. Um, but the Facebook still group still is there. Um, like I said, I'm kind of contemplating redoing the website because I still own the domain name. Um, I made sure I renewed that every couple of years. Um, I've done one-on-one um, conversations with moms who are caring to turn with this particular disorder. Anybody that I know in my, in my circle always sends P I actually am talking to somebody right now um, about about this kind of thing. And I just, I've always been, um, very open to having people. I let people know, just call me, let me know. If you know somebody with a problem, have them talk to me. Um, now I'm more involved with pro-life stuff though, specifically rather than this, because like I said, I just had to take a step back. It was getting very, it was, it was overwhelming me. Do you wish you had someone to talk to when you were going through it? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. You didn't. No, I didn't. And that's probably a lot of what, um, what motivated me. Yeah. Well, now that you work in the pro-life movement and I do too, I work for live action. I do some of their social media stuff, which means I have to look at their news website a lot. And I, I help deal with that end of it. And I'm constantly looking at very sad stories and sometimes it's hard. And when I get that one happy story of a, of a child who survived or, a child that was adopted or fostered and, you know, it turned out well, I'm just so happy to get that good story because there are so many sad stories and I don't think people realize that working in the pro-life movement or just being part of it is a hard thing to do. You're constantly, you know, we're making, we're making strides for sure, but you're constantly hearing sad stories, whether it's someone getting assaulted who's pro-life or, um, a woman regretting her abortion, like you're, you're constantly hearing these sad stories and it's really hard. 
but I want to ask you, when did you know? You said that you 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 were moving towards pro-life, you were with exceptions. When did you completely say, I am a pro-life person and really start working in that realm? Um, well, I knew during the pregnancy that for me that that was it. And I um, knew that at that point, you know, by the end of the pregnancy, I was like, this is, this is just wrong in all aspects. And, and I didn't, at that point, I still hadn't had, um, I didn't have motivation to go out and do something about it though. Um, that happened in 2011 after I had created the website and I started seeing, um, what I was noticing was if you go onto like the termination for medical reasons board on baby center and stuff like that, there were people who were, um, I started noticing that in addition to like the way that the doctors treated us, that there were actually people out there who were actively working to, who, um, to prove this, the stories like our family story and things like that were um, the negatives. They were people like me were just romanticizing. Um, this mm. was fanatical or they wanted to be martyrs and they, this and that. And I was, that wasn't how it was. And I started um, seeing within the groups that I was in um, lost mom groups and stuff that the antagonistic attitude from um, people who had terminated, they just could not, deal with the women who had continued, um, which then segged into them talking about making it clear that the reason that they had terminated was sacrificial, that women who carried to term were, were torturing their babies, trying to make them suffer. They didn't care. They were doing it for their own benefit. Um, so that mm -hmm. on the women's, that was on the women's aspect of it. I should, I got to backtrack during the pregnancy. It was the realization that while I was pregnant, my child was not being treated like a human being. Yeah. But she was a human being. And that really got me exploring my own thoughts about, um, about um, what I thought about the whole situation on the whole subject. And I realized that um, part of, this is just on a more selfish kind of introspective um, aspect of it. I'm not talking about like learning about the science and all that kind of stuff um, that I, if I couldn't, I knew that she was human. So how could I expect other people to view anybody's unborn child as human if I was supporting an action that, um, that just dehumanized all these unborn children, you know, it just didn't make any sense. And I've been asked before, like, when did I make that leap? I can't really say like, this is what happened. This is what happened. This is what happened. I think it's, it's a slow process. It is. And it's a learning experience, especially having grown up in a household where, um, I know that my grandmother told a story, you know, I was, I was a kid in the eighties and I remember going to the Bible camp and wearing the t-shirt, you know, the pro-life t-shirt, but not really understanding what it meant. And she's, mm -hmm. well, I was, I was assaulted. So I will never and believe that abortion shouldn't be legal. And, um, you know, growing up hearing that and, um, you know, it was, it was a process over time when I definitively stepped into it and said, this is what I am. It was, I reached, when I reached out to, uh, um, Rebecca at save the one and asked if I could start um, writing for them and doing things with them. So that was when mm -hmm. I made that leap. And I think that was 2011. So less than a year after my daughter was born. Well, for the last question, I just want to ask, what should a woman who is in your the situation that you were in, what should they do? What's your piece of advice for someone going through uh, a difficult pregnancy or someone who's afraid that they might have complications or what do you, what's your piece of advice? Um, first, I would suggest that they look at perinatal hospice. Um, there's a lovely website online um, that gives a lot of resources for personal um, consumption Second, I would suggest they attempt as hard as they can to find a pro-life gynecologist, obstetrician, um, maternal fetal medicine doctors. And um, if they want somebody who's going to practice in a life-affirming way, um, they're really going to have to seek out somebody who actually is individually themselves a pro-life person. Um, mm -hmm. Those would be the two, the two best. Um, third, I'm going to say this 
find a mom's group for whatever the syndrome that you're looking at, because you're going to find the best information is going to be, obviously they're not doctors, but it's going to be passed anecdotally back and forth between the moms. Um, at the time that I was looking at information about my daughter, it was before the Facebook groups had really taken off and I was in the Yahoo chat group. And that oh, was, man. yeah, yeah, that's how long I got. But that's where I got most of the information so that I knew what questions to ask my doctors because moms mm -hmm. who have already been through your situation are going to know exactly what roadblocks you're facing and they're going to be able to tell you exactly what you, the words you need to say, the questions you need to ask the treatments you need to request, they're all going to know exactly what you're, what to expect and what you need to do. And they're going to help you become really informed and really uh, an expert on not only your child, but your child's condition. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, post this loss, I can't imagine that things would have, I can imagine things going significantly better if I would have had access to mom's groups for, different subjects you know i really the, the wealth of there's so much information out there sarah st Ange, thanks for coming on oh you're welcome thank you the cassie dillon show is a lone conservative production it is produced by tony Kinnett. David Zielinski, Sebastian Thorman, and Keegan Nazari. Audio is mixed by Dylan Case.